Go ahead, take your Bibles if you would, and let's turn to Luke 3. Luke 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here. Please take time to fill out a visitor card. Uh, We want to make sure that we uh, have a record of your being with us, and we just certainly appreciate that. If you did not get a welcome pack on your way in, uh, they're out here on the table uh, on the on your way out. If you would, please, just pick up one of those welcome packs. The pack's for you. The only thing we ask, just there's a little card inside. If you would, please fill that out. And uh, you can feel free to just leave it on the table. Someone will pick it up. Uh, but we are glad that you are with us this morning. Glad you've chosen to be here. Uh, also, I uh, want to um, encourage... Uh, others to come out this week, support your basketball team. Tough go this past week. Glad to have Coach Gentry back with us. Uh, hopefully help out the, take, take that back over soon enough. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, um, come out and support the team Tuesday night. We'd love to have you here. Uh, also, um, good to have the Ottingers back. Please continue to pray uh, for Don and his family. His father went, uh, passed away. Uh, this past week, and uh, we've been praying for you, brother, and praying for uh, your family. So please continue to uphold them in prayer. I know they would appreciate that. All right, why don't we go ahead and look to the Lord at this moment and ask His presence and blessing with us today. Father God, Lord, this is your time. And Lord, I pray that our hearts are here this morning to look to you. No doubt there's a lot of need. Um, there's a lot of hurt. A lot of problems, a lot of situations. Uh, Father, you know every individual life. You know what each person is dealing with. Lord, I pray that today we would unload those burdens and that we would lay them at the foot of the cross. I pray that our hearts would be drawn to you in worship. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that we would be diligent to rightly divide it, that you would draw us closer. As a result, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would just have His will and way in our life. Lord, I give this time to You. I pray that I'd be a conduit of Your grace. I pray that You would give me clarity of thought. Lord, help me to recall the things that have been studied this week. And Lord, may it be a help and a hope to those that are here today and those listening via the radio. We give You the praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, and I want to take a little time here in this portion of Scripture that we were in last week and sort of recap a few things uh, and highlight a few others. At this point, we find the ministry of John the Baptist in full swing. And... uh, Luke, as we'll remind you, is not laying out necessarily a chronological order of events, and you'll see this in today's passage, but he is highlighting certain things. And in this text today, in Luke chapter 3, he's highlighting the ministry of John the Baptist. Today's message is entitled, Where are the John the Baptists today? Where are those men? Where are the men that have that holy boldness, that aren't afraid to stand up for what is right and what is true? You'll learn in today's study about a man named Herod, one of the leaders of the land there. John did not in any way, shape, or form shy away from engaging this leader with truth. I don't know if any of you noticed to watch the news this past week, but uh, there was such a man that did such a thing at the national uh, breakfast, national prayer breakfast. A gentleman by the name of Dr. Ben Carson, and I don't know if any of you have seen uh, what he said at the breakfast. If you haven't, I encourage you to go home today and go YouTube. You can probably find anything there. Um, do a search, C-SPAN carried it in its entirety if you want to see the full 30 minutes of his speech. And praise the Lord uh, for this man who stood and gave the truth 
while the president sat within two people from him here, and the vice president sat within one or two people of him there. And he didn't water down his speech. He spoke the truth in love and delivered a very, very timely message, I believe. I'll give you some of the quotes uh, uh, of some of the the comments that that were shared. Dr. Carson stated this this week. One of our big problems right now is our deficit. Our national debt, $16.5 trillion. You think that's not a lot of money? Counting one number per second. One, two, three, four. You know how long it would take to count to one trillion? And by the way, our national debt, $16.5 trillion. You know how long it would take? To count to one trillion, five hundred and seven thousand years. I don't like to bring up problems, he says. Dr. Carson goes on. I don't like to bring up problems without coming up with solutions. What about our taxation system? It is so complex. There's no one who can possibly comply with every jot and tittle. That doesn't make any sense. What we need to do is come up with something that's simple. The inherently fair principle is proportionality. And he shares some scripture in regards to this concept. He brings up the tithe and he speaks of how in the scriptures nowhere is there the rich paying more. Tithe is a tithe is a tithe. So he speaks of proportionality. He says, you make $10 billion, you put a billion in. You make $10, you put in one. Of course, you have to get rid of the loopholes. Some people say, that's not fair. It doesn't hurt the guy who made $10 million. Where does it say you have to hurt that guy? He just put a billion dollars into the pot. Anyways, I encourage you, Take a look at the man's speech. It wasn't ugly. It wasn't one side or the other. In fact, his closing comment is about the eagle. And he says, you know what makes the eagle soar? The right wing and the left wing. <laughs> it's a great speech. Again, check it out. Why do I cite him? Because, you know, look, I'm not, I don't like any politicking from here. That's not what we do. That's not what the church is about. But I share that story because what this pulpit is about, it is about truth and it's about God's truth. And one of the things that I want to speak of today is the truth about there is a need for men and women to stand up for what is right, to stand up for the truth and not be afraid to proclaim it. A man who is intimate with God will never be intimidated by men. Leonard Ravenhill. Let me say that quote again. A man who is intimate with God will never be intimidated by men. It's a powerful statement. I'm afraid too often times we are fearful of man. We'll find such a guy in this text as well. We find a good number of people described in today's reading. Look with me, if you would, in Luke 3, verse 2. Luke 3, verse 2. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by Him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits, 
worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people ask him, saying, What shall we do then? He he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. and Be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts and John, about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. Now, again, we know Luke is not writing in chronological order simply because of it goes next into Jesus' ministry and it references the baptism of Jesus and John has a part in that. And so this again, as Luke has been doing, and we've already mentioned earlier in our study, that he, he will take and, and include the subject matter that he's wanting to deal with. It's not a chronological account. It is uh, an account of certain snapshots that he's wanting to share. And in this text, he finds it uh, under the Holy Spirit's direction to include that, that this Herod ends up eventually placing John in prison. Now, John the Baptist's ministry is beginning to come to a close, and in the studies in the days ahead, we will pick up Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is coming on the scene. There's an overlap of the two ministries for probably about a year. And you will find also in in other texts, you'll find more details of John's ministry, um, and we'll look at a few of those this morning. But one of the big things that John recognizes as Christ comes on the scene is that he must decrease so that Christ may increase. Many of sermons have been preached from that text, um, and that's not where we're going today, though it's a very important point to share. Notice in the text the people. Here's John the Baptist. He's been in the wilderness. And he is now baptizing people. He's calling people to repentance. He is preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. He's preparing the way for the Lord. He's letting folks know the Lord's coming. You better get right. Message we can still stand to hear today, isn't it? The Lord's coming. We need to get right. So John is preaching this message. Uh, Very interesting when you think about this. John's, he's not in a priestly robe, is he? No, in fact, he's in some camel hair. He's not uh, out of the big fancy temple, is he? No. He's been in the wilderness. It's interesting that there is a hunger and thirst for truth. 
and people weren't finding it in the temple. And so they're coming out to where John is. They're coming out to where John is to discover what it is. What is this truth? What is this that's being preached? It's been 425 years since a prophet has been on the scene, since a person has spoken in the name of the Lord. And now there is one who has risen and is speaking and it's being known and is sweeping throughout this area. And folks are gathering. Notice the people. And I'm just going to hit these. I, I, I mean, I could have camped out on this and made a sermon out of this all its own. But, but I want you to just kind of, if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. If you're looking in your Bible, you may want to underline or highlight these sections. By the way, if you're not following along in the Bible, you're missing out. Grab a Bible in front of you because when, when we're, t- I'm a, I'm a verse by verse kind of guy. And it, it really helps you glean and learn more if you actually follow along and allow the Holy Spirit to engage you in the text as opposed to the person sitting next to you engaging you. Alright. So, the people were, number one, seeking. Look in verse 7. Notice what verse 7 says. It says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. They obviously... Again, they weren't going to the temple. They came out. They were seeking. And he even says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He called them a, 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 a brood of, of, uh, of uh, snakes. He said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Remember last week we talked about that and the significance of that phrase. But these people, obviously, were people who were seeking. They also were people who were willing. Notice verse 10. He says, So the people asked Him, saying, What shall we do then? What do we need to do to get right? You see, they had a willingness. They weren't only looking for God. They were willing. They were willing to, What do I need to do? What what must I do? In our Sunday school class this morning, we've been uh, doing uh, CPR, not literally, um, spiritual CPR. (laughs) Boy, are my lips chapped. I'm just kidding. Um, No, we're talking about spiritual CPR. (laughs) Anyway. And one of the things that came up in our discussion this morning was about the willingness. If we want to experience personal revival, if we want to experience revival as a church, look, there's got to be a willingness in our heart. And it starts with a seeking. We've got to seek God first. Whoa. We need to seek God. We need to be willing. And we need to be expecting. That sound I wasn't expecting. (laughs) But... Notice, expecting, verse 15, we find this. The people were not only seeking and and, and willing, they were also expecting. Verse 15, he says, Now as the people were in expectation. What were they expecting? Now they, they wondered, was John the Christ? But see, again, here's what, when I read this portion of Scripture, this leaps off the page at me, that here's a group of people who are number one, They're hungry for truth. Their needs weren't being met. They are looking for answers. And they've come out to where John the Baptist is proclaiming the truth. And they're willing. What what do we need to do? How many of you are asking that question? God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do, God, to get right with you? What do I need to do in my my personal life to experience your presence in in, in a way that's transforming and changing me? You see, they were expecting to meet God too. And I wonder too often times we don't come to church expecting to meet with God. We come and we go through a ritual and we might as well be at the temple. But I don't know about you, but I want to I want to hear I want to hear from God. I want to seek God when we gather together as believers. 
And, and I want to be willing. God, I want to be willing in your hands. What, what must I do? What do I need to do? And you notice, John answered them. He gave them specifics. Now, if you want me to give you some specifics, you're going to need to set up an appointment, uh, come by my office, we'll talk. And I got a feeling I'm not going to do as good a job as John the Baptist did. <laughs> All right? Here's, here's the thing, though. Let, let me ask this. How many of us, if we really begin to seek God and ask Him, what do I need to do? How many of us in here think He's not willing to tell us what we need to do? See, God wants to tell us. The problem is, I don't think we're really willing to hear what God wants to say. Because that infringes upon my comfort level. That infringes upon my life. That infringes upon my future. That infringes upon my family. That infringes upon my job. These people were at a place where they said, I'm I'm willing. What shall we do? And see, John being full of the Holy Spirit since the womb, remember, we've already studied all this. He didn't need a seminary degree to tell these folks. The Spirit of God was moving in this prophet of God in this time where God was was bringing a point in time to these folks to clear the way for the Messiah. But you know what, church? I believe the Lord wants to clear a way in our own hearts, and our own lives, that we can hear from Him. And it starts by seeking, and we've got to be willing, and we've got to be expecting. Expect that when you get before a holy God, and you are genuine in your repentance, you're genuine in your call and your cry, you will hear from God. And that's where we need to be. That's where we need to be. So, notice what happens. They begin to wonder, is is he the Christ? Is this John the Christ? And of course, John acknowledges he's not the Christ. You can cross-reference, if you want, to to John chapter 3. You'll see the account, and that's where in John 3.30, John makes the statement, he must increase... He must increase, but I must decrease. He says, look, I'm not the Messiah. He said, in fact, there's one mightier than I is coming, and whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to loose. You know, that was a practice in the day that, that you, you know, you didn't do that. But yet, John, he knows, look, man, he, he said, this, I, I'm not worthy, this, this person that, that's coming, the Messiah, look, you, you're trying to equate me to the Messiah, I'm not even worthy to, to, to even to, you know, undo this guy's sandal strap. The unfastening of the sandal strap, MacArthur says, was the lowest slave's task, preliminary to washing the feet. John knew in comparative terms, who was he? Who was he in comparative terms? He says, the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptizing with water. Those that were coming out, those who were genuine in repentance, those who were looking to put their faith and trust in the Messiah, John was willing to baptize. But he knew there was a, there was a chapter in, in time that was coming, the church age, the age of grace, when the Holy Spirit of God would baptize believers. You know, every believer... Every born-again believer in the church age, if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been baptized into the body of Christ. You have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit of God. You have been baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. It's not a second or third blessing that you get. The moment that you repent and put your faith and trust in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We were all baptized into one body. Paul here is writing of the common immersion all believers have in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus, a common immersion which brings them into one body. But notice, John the Baptist is is making this point. Hey, look, the Messiah is coming. And eventually, uh, there's coming a time when believers, those who are repentant and put their faith in the Messiah, will be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They will be baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. And then he mentions an interesting phrase. He says, and with fire. What does he mean there? Well, he's looking to the future because there's also coming a day. By the way, what does the Spirit of God come into the earth for? Why is the Holy Spirit here? To convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You see, there's coming a day when God will judge the earth and He will judge it with fire. And so John says this here. Notice what he says. Here is a, there is a future fulfillment that's coming. He, he says uh, here in Luke 3, notice, uh, John answers saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his, right, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. One day it will be judgment. You see, chaff, that's the part uh, of the grain that, that's useless, is separated it's the useless shell part of the grain, and it's separated uh, from the useful wheat. And that winnowing fan, that was a wooden shovel that they would toss that up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff, the useless part away. And so that would carry that useless part away, and they would gather all of the wheat, all of the, the grain, the important stuff together. And there's coming a day when judgment will be poured out, and there will be a separating. Notice verse 18. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. John has just told these guys, all right, you tax collectors, you need to do this. You soldiers, you need to do that. You folk need to do this. He was very specific in his preaching, and he pinpointed some things, no doubt that the Holy Spirit is leading him to point out And it says that many other exhortations he preached. And then notice what happens, verse 19. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, and added this above all, that he shut John up, in prison. How about a little background on this Herod Antipas, as he's known in the New Testament? Antipas appears in the New Testament more frequently than any other member of the Herodian dynasty. Now remember, this is not Herod the Great, but this is one of his children. This is part of that dynasty of the Herodian dynasty. His rule, Antipas' rule, coincides with the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, and we are not through with this man as we move forward into later chapters in Luke. He will uh, appear again, specifically in regards to the trial of Jesus Christ. MacArthur has the following to say about the history, the early years of Herod Antipas. Antipas was born in 25 B.C. to Herod the Great and his sixth wife. He had ten wives altogether. In addition, he had several half-brothers and sisters, as you can imagine, a lot of step-siblings there. He had two full siblings, Archelaus and Olympias. But he had lots of step-brothers. We know in Luke 3, verse 3, he speaks of that uh, Herodias is the wife of his brother Philip, 
in the beginning portions, I'm sorry, of chapter 3, it speaks of, it speaks of that. Uh, it speaks of, in, in, actually it's in verse 1, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and the region of Trachonitis. So there in verse 1 of Luke 3, we find that um, we understand that Herodias is, is the wife of this brother Philip. Herod was, was married at the time. Okay, so I'll give you a little history on this. Herod Antipas is married. And he was married actually to the daughter of the king of the Nabataean Arabs, Aratus by name. Aratus was the king. So Herod was married to his daughter. So you got this king over Nabataean. He has a daughter. Herod's married to him, to her. But Herod had a brother in Rome named Philip. He actually had two brothers named Philip. One was Philip the Tetrarch, who was ruling in that area, as already mentioned, and Trachonitis and Eturia. But he had another brother named Philip who was also in Rome, and he was a private citizen. He was uh, kind of a business person. He had no rulership, and he was disinherited. He never got any of his father, Herod the Great's land or rule, because he was very, very despised, apparently, by his own mother. So there was a lot uh, of, of that going on in the Herod family. As you can imagine, with ten wives, all the children, I imagine it was a Jerry Springer moment. Well, he had all these children from all these different women. So there's two Philips. They were actually half-brothers. One was a ruler and one was a private citizen in Rome. The one in Rome, Philip, had a wife by the name of Herodias. She was the daughter of another son of Herod the Great by another woman. You following me here? So his wife is his half-sister. Philip was one generation from the loins of Herod the Great. I guess she's two generations from Herod the Great. So they're connected in that fashion. This is incest, folks, plain and simple. John certainly had every right to condemn this marriage. All right? Um, What ends up happening is uh, Antipas travels to Rome stays at his brother's house. Herodias and him evidently take to liking one another and they eventually leave their spouses and join together in marriage. So not only do you have incest, you also have divorce and you have adultery. So, there was adultery involved, there was a divorce involved, there was incestuous relationship involved, and John the Baptist calls him out on it. Now, how many of us call sin, sin? I mean, really, would we call sin, sin? That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? And I wonder sometimes do we quickly side skirt it and say, well, wait a minute now, that's a prophet. He's full of the Holy Spirit. God directed him to do that. Well, I understand that. But are we doing anyone any favors when we don't speak the truth in love? Because by the way, Was John rebuking, was John correcting this man to hurt him? Or was his call just like it was to the other people, who, by the way, he referred to as vipers? It seems harsh, I understand, especially in our PC world that we're in today. But the reality is, guys, this is love. This is straightforward, in-your-face love. God's not willing that any perish, but that all would come to repentance. 
Can you imagine if this Herod Antipas was convicted of his sin? Because no doubt he knew it was wrong. We find this out later in Scripture. He refers to John the Baptist as a holy man and a righteous man. Scripture says this. So I don't think Herod, though I'm sure it obviously offends him, he recognized a man of God. You know, belief brings conviction. And conviction brings action. And I think if some of us really begin to believe the Word of God, and we begin to see what God hates, and we begin to actually hate what God hates, that we might develop some stronger convictions in our own life, and our actions might show it. Not not in a hypocrisy sense where I love to point out other people's sin while ignoring my own. No. But look, John the Baptist is not sleeping with a cousin and uh, married to somebody who's you know, had an affair, he had an affair with, right? So John's got every right to stand up. Now, you know, if somebody wanted to talk to him about bug juice, he, he probably couldn't say it too much about that, you know, because he's eating some locusts and honey. Not that that was a sin, but anyway. I just wonder where the holy boldness is today. So, let's continue on. Notice verse, again, verse 20. This is not chronological. He commented, uh, notice this comment, because this is a little odd phrase here, and I know for some of you, like me, when I first began to look at this, I was like, this doesn't make sense. He says, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. Well, what does that mean? Because it says Herod, the tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and all the evils which Herod had done, Herod's been doing a lot of bad things. John the Baptist is calling him out on it. He's rebuking him. Why is he rebuking him? Because he wants him to repent. He wants him to be saved. He cares enough about the guy's soul to tell him, you're on a wrong path. And you need to get right with God. Look, when I stand up here and preach and it's hard and and some people get their their toes stepped on, it's not because I'm trying to rain on your parade or make you have a lousy day or that I'm trying to be holier than thou or that I'm, you know, I'm genuinely trying to tell the truth in love because... Listen, Miss Bobby stood up here a while ago, and I appreciate what she said. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I can relate to that. I know what God brought me out of. When Paul said it, Paul knew what God brought him out of. No, I'm not what I should be. But praise God, I'm not what I used to be. God delivered me out of that past of sin. Paul in his writing says, now hold on, don't get too far ahead because you too once were like that. But here's the point. We can't shy away from sharing the truth in love with boldness and holiness just because of our past sins that are forgiven. In fact, it should give us a platform to speak even more boldly, even more holy, even more with power and conviction because we know what we've been taken out of. We've been redeemed. And bless God, I'm happy that I have the Lord in my life now. I don't want anything to do with that past. By the grace of God, I am today who I am because of Him. And that's worth me getting in somebody's grill over. Because I wish somebody had gotten my grill when I was living in sin. I probably wouldn't have heard them at the time. And I'd have probably called them names and I would have probably told you, that's the problem with the church, people like that. But the truth was, that seed was planted. That seed was watered. And when I got to a moment of brokenness, I knew the people that had the boldness to stand in my face and tell me I was wrong, they were right. Let's look at the story of John. I know it's not chronologically in place, but let's look at him in prison. Real quickly, everybody turn over to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Matthew 14, verses 3 through 12, gives us an account. Very popular. You've you've heard this one. You know this one. For Herod, Matthew 14, 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison, 
for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. That's a euphemism for sexual excitement. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Notice what the text says, And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. You talk about peer pressure. He's got an ungodly bunch hanging around him. And instead of doing what he knows is right, he falls to the peer pressure of those around him. Now, I'm sure he justified, well, you know, I don't want to go back on my word. I need to be a man of my word. And the text does say because of uh, the oath and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Turn over in Mark. We get the account again with some other details. Look in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. Mark six seventeen says this, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. She's bitter about that. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. Isn't that interesting? But wait a minute. John got in Herod's grill. He called him a sinner. He told him, what you're doing is wrong. This is unlawful. That is your brother's wife. It's wrong in the sight of God. And you need to stop. But did Herod, Antipas, make comments about John being, oh, yeah, he's just a hypocrite. He's these problems. He is blah, blah, blah down the road that too oftentimes... The world likes to use the, judge not lest ye be judged. Read the full context, folks. Remove the (coughs) telephone pole first from your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly how to help your brother remove the toothpick from his. But the telephone pole ain't there. By God's grace, you see clear, you have a responsibility. You are your brother's keeper. And if you know your brother is in sin and he's practicing sin, it's a lifestyle of sin, don't let your brother or sister stay in that lifestyle. If you love them, help them. Help them for crying out loud. Don't turn a blind eye to it. You see the response? Herod Antipas knew He didn't take that personal. He knew John was a just man. He knew he was a holy man. Notice what it says. His wife couldn't put him to death because Herod is protecting him. He feared John. He knew that he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things. And he heard him gladly. Wow, that is interesting, isn't it? He actually enjoyed listening to John the Baptist preach. He enjoyed it. He said he'd listen to him gladly. 
He enjoyed listening to this preaching of righteousness. He enjoyed hearing the truth of God's Word. And you know what, church? There's a lot of people that come in the pews of churches and they actually enjoy hearing good preaching. They enjoy hearing the Word of God. And then they leave here and never let it change their life. James says, don't be a hearer, not a doer. You look into the Word and you deceive yourself. You look into the Word, hey, I've looked into the Word, I've checked myself in the mirror, but you go away and you don't let it change you. And so, here the Scripture says that John, in dealing with Herod, it, it noticed that Herod, he heard him. He did many things. He heard him gladly. Verse 21, Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. This is a stag party. They were, had a little too much to drink. Now it's getting a hold of him. And he makes this, hey, I'll give you up to half, half the kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. Brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us the daughter's name. Do any of you know what the daughter's name was? Josephus, early historian, records the name. Salome. And that's no baloney. That was a meaty joke, in case y'all didn't get that. She learned the incestuous way herself. She later marries her own uncle. Some things, I guess, stay in the family. What a horrific way to end the party. Matthew Broadus wrote, When the dish was brought with the bleeding head on it, no doubt she took it daintily in her hands, lest a drop of blood should stain her gala dress, and tripped away to her mother as if bearing her some choice dish of food from the king's table. It was not uncommon to bring the head of one who had been slain to the person who ordered it as a sure proof that the command had been obeyed. When the head of Cicero was brought to Fulvia, the wife of Mark Anthony, she spat on it and drawing out the tongue which had so eloquently opposed and condemned Anthony, she pierced the tongue with her hairpin with bitter jibes. Jerome refers to this incident and says that Herodias did the same with the head of John, spit on it, pulled out the tongue, and pierced it. I close with this. Are you like the people? Are we like the people? Are we seeking... Are we willing? Are we expecting? Or maybe you're like Herod. Maybe you're here and you're like Herod. You're fearful of man. Let's just be honest. You don't want to get right with God because you fear what your friends are going to say. You're more fearful of the peer pressure of co-workers, family members, others around you to do what you know is right. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Let me ask you this. Are you like John? Are you like John? Are you pointing others to Christ? Remember, John's there to prepare the way for the Lord. 
Are you pointing others to Jesus Christ? Are you calling for repentance and faith in Christ? Are you encouraging people to right living? Are you calling sin, sin, and exhorting others with the good news of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we need more Johns. We need more John the Baptist in our day. Lord, help us to seek. May we be willing. Lord, may we be expecting. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today, maybe, maybe they're like Herod, maybe truth be known, they don't have a problem with sitting and listening to, to preaching. In, in fact, maybe they've been in church all their life. Maybe, maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the big problem is the fear of man. Fearful of what others think if they, they got right. They truly repented and put their hope and trust in Christ alone for salvation and for sanctification. And one day glorification. Lord, I pray if there's any Herods here amongst us today, that Lord, today they would be broken to true repentance and that they would turn from their life of sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Lord, you said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray in this moment, if that's you, if God's speaking to you, the Spirit of God is moving on your heart, it's time to get right. It's time to repent. There's a day of judgment coming, but God's providing a way for you to escape. He's not willing that you perish. He wants you to repent. He wants you to cry out for Him for help. In this moment, would you cry out to Him? Just cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. Forgive me my sin. Save my soul. If the Spirit of God is calling you to that point, please, don't grieve Him. Don't reject Him. Receive Him. Surrender. God, I surrender. Make me your own. 